Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're going to continue the reading of Sailing Alone Around the World by Captain Joshua Slocum, and we're on chapter 17. On the 16th of September, after eight restful days at Rodriguez, the mid-ocean land of plenty, I set sail and on the 19th arrived at Mauritius, anchoring at quarantine about noon. The sloop was towed in later on the same day by the doctor's launch after he was satisfied that I had mustered all the crew for inspection. Of this, he seemed in doubt until he examined the papers which called for a crew of one all told from port to port throughout the voyage. Then, finding that I had been well enough to come thus far alone, he gave me pratique without further ado. There was still another official visit for the spray to pass farther in the harbour, the governor of Rodriguez, who had most kindly given me, besides a regular mail, private letters of introduction to friends, told me I should meet, first of all, Mr. Jenkins of the Postal Service, a good man. How do you do, Mr. Jenkins, cried I, as his boat swung alongside. You don't know me, he said. Why not, I replied. From where is the sloop? From around the world, I again replied, very solemnly. And alone? Yes, why not? And you know me? Three thousand years ago, cried I, when you and I had a warmer job than we have now. Even this was hot. You were then Jenkinson, but if you have changed your name, I don't blame you for that. Mr. Jenkins, forbearing soul, entered into the spirit of the jest, which served the spray a good turn, for on the strength of this tale it got out that if any one should go aboard after dark, the devil would get him at once. And so I could leave the spray without the fear of her being robbed at night. The cabin, to be sure, was broken into, but it was done in daylight and the thieves got no more than a box of smoked herrings before Tom Ledson, one of the port officials, caught them red-handed, as it were, and sent them to jail. This was discouraging to pilferers, for they feared Ledson more than they feared Satan himself. Even Mahmoud Haji Ayub, who was the day watchman on board till an empty box fell over in the cabin and frightened him out of his wits, could not be hired to watch nights or even till the sun went down. Saib, he cried, there is no need of it, and what he said was perfectly true. At Mauritius, where I drew a long breath, the spray rested her wings, it being the season of fine weather. The hardships of the voyage, if there had been any, were now computed by officers of experience as nine-tenths finished, and yet somehow I could not forget that the United States was still a long way off. The kind people of Mauritius, to make me richer and happier, rigged up the opera house which they named the ship's pantai all decks had no bottom with this ship but she was as stiff as a church they gave me free use of it while i talked over the spray's adventures his honor the mayor introduced me to his excellency the governor from the poop deck of the pantai in this way i was also introduced again to our good consul general john p campbell who had already introduced me to his excellency I was becoming well acquainted, and was in for it now to sail the voyage over again. How I got through the story I hardly know. It was a hot night and I could have choked the tailor who made the coat I wore for the occasion. The kind governor saw that I had done my part trying to rig like a man ashore, and he invited me to the government house at Reduit, where I found myself among friends. It was winter still off stormy Cape of Good Hope, but the storms might whistle there, I had determined to see it out in milder Mauritius, visiting Rose Hill, Curipipi, and other places on the island. 
I spent a day with the elder Mr. Roberts, father of Governor Roberts of Rodriguez, and with his friends, the very Reverend Fathers O'Loughlin and McCarthy. Returning to the spray by way of the great flower conservatory near Mocha, the proprietor, having only that morning discovered a new and hardy plant, to my great honour, named it Slocum, which he said Latinized it at once, saving him some trouble on the twist of a word, and the good botanist seemed pleased that I had come. How different things are in different countries. In Boston, Massachusetts, at that time, a gentleman, so I was told, paid $30,000 to have a flower named after his wife, and it was not a big flower either, while Slocum, which came without the asking, was bigger than a mangle wurzel. I was royally entertained at Mocha, as well as at Reduit and other places, once by seven young ladies to whom I spoke of my inability to return their hospitality, except in my own poor way of taking them on a sail in the sloop. The very thing, the very thing, they all cried. Then please name the time, I said as meek as Moses. Tomorrow, they all cried. And auntie, we may go, mayn't we? And we'll be really good for a whole week afterward, auntie. Say yes, auntie dear. All this after saying tomorrow for girls in Mauritius are, after all, the same as our girls in America, and their dear aunt said, me too, about the same as any really good aunt might say in my own country. I was then in a quandary, it having recurred to me that on the very tomorrow I was to dine with the harbour master, Captain Wilson. However, I said to myself, the spray will run out quickly into rough seas. These young ladies will have mal de mer and a good time, and I'll get in early enough to be at the dinner, after all but not a bit of it. We sailed almost out of sight of Mauritius, and they just stood up and laughed at seas tumbling aboard while I was at the helm, making the worst weather of it I could, and spinning yarns to the aunt about sea serpents and whales. But she, dear lady, when I had finished with stories of monsters, only hinted at a basket of provisions they had brought along, enough to last a week, for I told them about my wretched steward. The more the spray tried to make these young ladies seasick, the more they all clapped their hands and said how lovely it is and how beautifully she skims over the sea and how beautiful our island appears from the distance. And they still cried, go on. We are 15 miles or more at sea before they cease their eager cry, go on. Then the sloop swung round, I still hoping to be back at Port Louis in time to keep my appointment. The spray reached the island quickly and flew along the coast fast enough but I made a mistake in steering along the coast on the way home, for as we came abreast of Tombow Bay, it enchanted my crew. Oh, let's anchor here, they cried. To this no sailor in the world would have said nay. The sloop came to anchor ten minutes later, as they wished, and a young man on the cliff abreast waved his hat, cried, Viva la spray! My passengers said, Auntie, mayn't we have a swim in the swerf along the shore? Just then the harbour master's launch hove in sight, coming out to meet us but it was not too late to get the sloop into Port Louis that night. The launch was in time, however, to land my fair crew for a swim, but they were determined not to desert the ship. Meanwhile, I prepared a roof for the night on deck with the sails and a Bengali manservant arranged for the evening meal. That night, the spray rode in Tombow Bay with her precious freight. Next morning, bright and early, even before the stars were gone, I awoke to hear praying on deck. The port officer's launch reappeared later in the morning, this time with Captain Wilson himself on board, to try his luck in getting the spray into port, for he had heard of our predicament. It was worth something to hear a friend tell afterward how earnestly the good harbour master of Mauritius said, I'll find the spray and I'll get her into port. 
A merry crew he discovered on her. They could hoist sails like old tars and could trim them too. They could tell all about the ship's hoods, and one should have seen them clap a bonnet on the jib. Like the deepest of deep-water sailors, they could heave the lead and, as I hope to see Mauritius again, any of them could have put the sloop in stays. No ship ever had a fairer crew. The voyage was the event of Port Louis. Such a thing as young ladies sailing about the harbour, even, was almost unheard of before. While at Mauritius, the spray was tendered, the use of the military dock free of charge, and was thoroughly refitted by the port authorities. My sincere gratitude is also due other friends for many things needful for the voyage put on board, including bags of sugar from some of the most famous old plantations. The favourable season now set in, and thus, well equipped, on the 26th of October, the spray put to sea. As I sailed before a light wind, the island receded slowly, and on the following day I could still see the Poos Mountain near Mocha. The spray arrived next day off Galette's reunion, and a pilot came out and spoke her. I handed him a Mauritius paper and continued on my voyage, for rollers were running heavily at the time and it was not practicable to make a landing. From reunion, I shaped a course direct for Cape St. Mary, Madagascar. The sloop was now drawing near the limits of the trade wind and the strong breeze that had carried her with free sheets the many thousands of miles from Sandy Cape, Australia, fell lighter each day until October 30th when it was altogether calm and a motionless sea held her in a hushed world. I furled the sails at evening, sat down on deck and enjoyed the vast stillness of the night. October 31st, a light east-northeast breeze sprang up and the sloop passed Cape St. Mary about noon. On the 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th of December, in the Mozambique Channel, she experienced a hard gale of wind from the southwest. Here, the spray suffered as much as she did anywhere except off Cape Horn. The thunder and lightning preceded this gale were very heavy. From this point until the sloop arrived off the coast of Africa, she encountered a succession of gales of wind which drove her about in many directions, but on the 17th of November, she arrived at Port Natal. This delightful place is the commercial centre of the garden colony, Durban itself, the city, being the continuation of a garden. The signal man from the bluff station reported the spray 15 miles off. The wind was freshening, and when she was within 8 miles, he said, the spray is shortening sail. The mainsail was reefed and set in 10 minutes. One man is doing all the work. This item of news was printed three minutes later in a Durban morning journal, which was handed to me when I arrived in port. I could not verify the time it had taken to reef the sail, for as I have already said, the minute hand of my timepiece was gone. I only knew that I reefed as quickly as I could. The same paper, commenting on the voyage, said, Judging from the stormy weather which has prevailed off this coast during the past few weeks, the spray must have had a very stormy voyage from Mauritius to Natal. Doubtless, the weather would have been called stormy by sailors in any ship, but it caused the spray no more inconvenience than the delay natural to headwinds generally. The question of how I sailed the sloop alone, often asked, is best answered perhaps by a Durban newspaper. I would shrink from repeating the editor's words, but for the reason that undue estimates have been made of the amount of skill and energy required to sail a sloop of even the spray's small tonnage. I heard a man, who called himself a sailor, say that it would require three men to do what it was claimed. That I did alone, and what I found perfectly easy to do over and over again, 
and I have heard that others have made similar nonsensical remarks, adding that I would work myself to death. But here is what the Durban paper said. As briefly noted yesterday, the spray, with a crew of one man, arrived at this port yesterday afternoon on her cruise around the world. The spray made quite an auspicious entrance to Natal. Her commander sailed his craft right up the channel, past the main wharf, and dropped his anchor near the old forerunner in the creek before anyone had a chance to get on board. The spray was naturally an object of great curiosity to the point people, and her arrival was witnessed by a large crowd. The skilful manner in which Captain Slocum steered his craft about the vessels which were occupying the waterway was a treat to witness. The spray was not sailing in among greenhorns when she came to Natal. When she arrived off the port, the pilot ship, a fine, able steam tug, came out to meet her and led the way in across the bar, for it was blowing a smart gale and was too rough for the sloop to be towed with safety. The trick of going in I learned by watching the steamer it was simply to keep on the windward side of the channel and take the coma's end on. I found that Durban supported two yacht clubs, both of them full of enterprise. I met all the members of both clubs and sailed in the crack yacht Florence of the Royal Natal with Captain Spradbrow and the Right Honourable Harry Escombe, Premier of the Colony. The yachts sent aboard ploughed furrows through the mud banks, which according to Mr Escombe, Spradbrow afterward planted with potatoes. The Florence, however, won races while she still tilled the skipper's land. After our sail on the Florence, Mr. Escombe offered to sail the spray round the Cape of Good Hope for me and hinted at his famous cribbage board to while away the hours. Spradbrow, in retort, warned me of it. Said he, you will be played out of the sloop before you could round the Cape. By others, it was not thought probable that the Premier of Natal would play cribbage off the Cape of Good Hope to win even the spray. It was a matter of no small pride to me in South Africa to find that American humor was never at a discount, and one of the best American stories I ever heard was told by the Premier. At Hotel Royal one day, dining with Colonel Saunderson MP, his son and Lieutenant Tipping, I met Mr. Stanley. The great explorer was just from Pretoria and had already as good as flayed President Kruger with his trenchant pen. But that did not signify, for everybody was a whack at Oom Paul, and no one in the world seems to stand by the joke better than he, not even the Sultan of Turkey himself. The Colonel introduced me to the explorer, and I hauled close to the wind to go slow, for Mr. Stanley was a nautical man once himself, on the Nyanza, I think, and of course my desire was to appear in the best light before a man of his experience. He looked me over carefully and said, What an example of patience. Patience is all that is required, I ventured to reply. He then asked if my vessel had watertight compartments. I explained that she was all watertight and all compartment. What if she should strike a rock? He asked. Compartments would not save her if she should hit the rocks lying along her course, said I, adding, she must be kept away from the rocks. After a considerable pause, Mr. Stanley asked, what if a swordfish should pierce her hull with its sword? Of course, I had thought of that at one of the dangers of the sea and also of the chance of being struck by lightning. In the case of the swordfish, I ventured to say that the first thing would be to secure the sword. The colonel invited me to dine with the party on the following day, that we might go further into this matter, and so I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Stanley a second time, but got no more hints in navigation from the famous explorer. It sounds odd to hear scholars and statesmen say the world is flat, 
but it is a fact that three Boers, favoured by the opinion of President Kruger, prepared a work to support that contention. While I was at Durban, they came from Pretoria to obtain data from me, and they seemed annoyed when I told them that they could not prove it by my experience. With the advice to call me up some ghost of the dark ages for research, I went ashore and left these three wise men poring over the spray's track on a chart of the world, which, however, proved nothing to them, for it was on Mercator's projection, and behold, it was flat. The next morning, I met one of the party in a clergyman's garb, carrying a large Bible, not different from the one I had read. He tackled me, saying, If you respect the word of God, you must admit that the world is flat. If the word of God stands on a flat world, I began. What? cried he, losing himself in a passion and making as if he would run me through with an asagi. What? he shouted in astonishment and rage, while I jumped aside to dodge the imaginary weapon. Had this good but misguided fanatic been armed with a real weapon, the crew of the spray would have died a martyr there and then. The next day, seeing him across the street, I bowed and made curves with my hands. He responded with a level, swimming movement of his hands, meaning, the world is flat. A pamphlet by these Transvaal geographers, made up of arguments from sources high and low to prove their theory, was mailed to me before I sailed from Africa on my last stretch around the globe. While I feebly portray the ignorance of these learned men, I have great admiration for their physical manhood. Much that I first saw and last of the Transvaal and the Boers was admirable. It is well known that they are the hardest of fighters, and as generous to the fallen as they are brave before the foe. Real, stubborn bigotry with them is only found among old fogies and will die a natural death, and that too, perhaps long before we ourselves are entirely free from bigotry. Education in the Transvaal is by no means neglected, English as well as Dutch being taught to all that can afford both. But the tariff duty on English school books is heavy, and from necessity, the poorer people stick to the Transvaal Dutch, and their world is flat, just as in Samoa and other islands, a mistaken policy has kept the natives down to Kanaka. I visited many public schools at Durban, and had the pleasure of meeting many bright children, but all fine things must end, and December 14th, 1897, the crew of the spray, after having a fine time in Natal, swung the sloop's dinghy in on deck and sailed with a morning land wind which carried her clear of the bar, and again she was off on her alone, as they say in Australia. Chapter 18 The Cape of Good Hope was now the most prominent point to pass. From Table Bay I could count on the aid of brisk trades, and then the spray would soon be at home. On the first day out from Durban it fell calm, and I sat thinking about these things and the end of the voyage. The distance to Table Bay, where I intended to call, was about 800 miles over what might prove to be a rough sea. The early Portuguese navigators, endowed with patience, were more than 69 years struggling to round this cape before they got as far as Algoa Bay, and there the crew mutinied. They landed on a small island now called Santa Cruz, where they devoutly set up the cross and swore they would cut the captain's throat if he attempted to sail further. Beyond this, they thought was the edge of the world, which they too believed was flat, and fearing that their ship would sail over the brink of it, they compelled Captain Diaz, their commander, to retrace his course, all being only too glad to get home. A year later, we are told, 
Vasco da Gama sailed successfully round the Cape of Storms, as the Cape of Good Hope was then called, and discovered Natal on Christmas or Natal Day, hence the name. From this point, the way to India was easy. Gales of wind sweeping round the Cape, even now, were frequent enough, one occurring on an average every 36 hours, but one gale was much the same as another, with no more serious result than to blow the spray along on her course when it was fair, or to blow her back somewhat when it was ahead. On Christmas, 1897, I came to the pitch of the Cape. On this day, the spray was trying to stand on her head, and she gave me every reason to believe that she would accomplish the feat before night. She began very early in the morning to pitch and toss about in a most unusual manner, and I have to record that while I was at the end of the bowsprit reefing the jib, she ducked me underwater three times for a Christmas box. I got wet, and I did not like it a bit. Never in any other sea was I put under more than once in the same short space of time, say three minutes. A large English steamer passing ran up the signal, wishing you a Merry Christmas. I think the captain was a humorist. His own ship was throwing a propeller out of the wave. Two days later, the spray, having recovered the distance lost in the gale, passed Cape Agullas in the company with the steamship Scotsman, now with a fair wind. The keeper of the light on Agullas exchanged signals with the spray as she passed, and afterward wrote me at New York congratulations on the completion of the voyage. He seemed to think the incident of two ships of so widely different types passing his cape together worthy of a place on canvas, and he went about having the picture made, so I gathered from his letter. At lonely stations like this, hearts grow responsive and sympathetic, and even poetic. This feeling was shown toward the spray along many a rugged coast, and reading many a kind signal thrown out to her gave one a grateful feeling for all the world. One more gale of wind came down upon the spray from the west after she passed Cape Agullas, but that one she dodged by getting into Simmons Bay. When it moderated, she beat around the Cape of Good Hope, where they say the Flying Dutchman is still sailing. The voyage then seemed as good as finished. From this time on, I knew that all or nearly all would be plain sailing. Here, I crossed the dividing line of weather. To the north, it was clear and settled, while south, it was humid and squally, with, often enough, as I have said, a treacherous gale. From the recent hard weather, the spray ran into a calm under Table Mountain where she lay quietly till a generous sun rose over the land and drew a breeze in from the sea. The steam tug, alert, then out looking for ships, came to the spray off the lion's rump and in lieu of a larger ship, towed her into port. The sea being smooth, she came to anchor in the bay off the city of Cape Town where she remained a day simply to rest clear of the bustle of commerce. The good harbour master sent his steam launch to bring the sloop to a berth in a dock at once, but I preferred to remain for a day alone in the quiet of a smooth sea, enjoying the retrospect of the passage of the two great capes. On the following morning, the spray sailed into the Alfred dry docks where she remained for about three months in the care of the port authorities while I travelled the country over from Simmonstown to Pretoria, being accorded by the colonial government a free railroad pass over all the land. The trip to Kimberley, Johannesburg and Pretoria was a pleasant one. At the last named place I met Mr. Kruger, the Transvaal President. His Excellency received me cordially enough, but my French, Judge Bayers, the gentleman who presented me, by mentioning that I was on a voyage around the world, unwittingly gave great offence to the venerable statesman, 
which we both regretted deeply. Mr. Kruger corrected the judge rather sharply, reminding him that the world is flat. You don't mean round the world, said the president. It is impossible. You mean in the world. Impossible, he said. Impossible. And not another word did he utter, either to the judge or to me. The judge looked at me and I looked at the judge, who should have known his ground, so to speak, and Mr. Kruger glowered at us both. My friend the judge seemed embarrassed, but I was delighted. The incident pleased me more than anything else that could have happened. It was a nugget of information quarried out of Oom Paul, some of whose sayings are famous. Of the English, he said, they took first my coat and then my trousers. He also said, dynamite is the cornerstone of the South African Republic. Only unthinking people call President Kruger dull. Soon after my arrival at the Cape, Mr. Kruger's friend, Colonel Saunderson, who had arrived from Durban some time before, invited me to Newlands Vineyard, where I met many agreeable people. His Excellency, Sir Alfred Milner, the governor, found time to come aboard with a party. The governor, after making a survey of the deck, found a seat on a box in my cabin. Lady Muriel sat on a keg, and Lady Saunderson sat by the skipper at the wheel, while the colonel, with his Kodak, away in the dinghy, took snapshots of the sloop and her distinguished visitors. Dr. David Gill, astronomer royal, who was of the party, invited me the next day to the famous Cape Observatory. An hour with Dr. Gill was an hour among the stars. His discoveries in stellar photography are well known. He showed me the great astronomical clock of the observatory, and I showed him the tin clock on the spray, and we went over the subject of standard time at sea and how it was found from the deck of the little sloop without the aid of a clock of any kind. Later, it was advertised that Dr. Gill would preside at a talk about the voyage of the spray. That alone secured me a full house. The hall was packed, and many were not able to get in. This success bought me sufficient money for all my needs in port and for the homeward voyage. After visiting Kimberley and Pretoria and finding the spray all right in the docks, I returned to Worcester and Wellington, towns famous for colleges and seminaries, past coming in, still travelling as the guest of the colony. The ladies of all these institutions of learning wished to know how one might sail round the world alone, which I thought augured of sailing mistresses in the future instead of sailing masters. It will come to that yet if we menfolk keep on saying we can't. On the plains of Africa, I passed through hundreds of miles of rich but still barren land, save for scrub bushes on which herds of sheep were browsing. The bushes grew about the length of a sheep apart, and they, I thought, were rather long of body, and there was still room for all. My longing for a foothold on land seized upon me here, where so much of it lay waste, but instead of remaining to plant forests and reclaim vegetation, I returned again to the spray at the Alfred docks, where I found her waiting for me with everything in order, exactly as I had left her. I have often been asked how it was that my vessel and my appurtenances were not stolen in the various ports where I left her for days together without a watchman in charge. This is just how it was. The spray seldom fell among thieves. At the Keeling Islands, at Rodriguez, and at many such places, a wisp of coconut fibre in the door latch to indicate that the owner was away secured the goods against even a longing glance. But when I came to a great island near a home, stout locks were needed. The first night in port, things which I had always left uncovered disappeared, as if the deck on which they were stowed had been swept by a sea. 
A pleasant visit from Admiral Sir Harry Rawlson of the Royal Navy and his family brought to an end the spray's social relations with the Cape of Good Hope. The Admiral, then commanding the South African squadron and now in command of the Great Channel Fleet, evinced the greatest interest in the diminutive spray and her behaviour off Cape Horn, where he was not an entire stranger. I have to admit that I was delighted with the trend of Admiral Rawson's questions and that I profited by some of his suggestions notwithstanding the wide difference in our respective commands. On March 26, 1898, the spray sailed from South Africa, the land of distances and pure air, where she had spent a pleasant and profitable time. The steam tug Tigra towed her to the sea from her wanted berth at the Alfred docks, giving her a good offing. The light morning breeze which scantily filled her sails when the tug let go the tow line soon died away altogether and left her riding over a heavy swell in full view of Table Mountain and the high peaks of the Cape of Good Hope. For a while, the grand scenery served to relieve the monotony. One of the old circumnavigators, Sir Francis Drake, I think, when he first saw this magnificent pile, sang, "'Tis the fairest thing and the grandest cape I've seen in the whole circumference of the earth." The view was certainly fine, but one has no wish to linger long to look in a calm at anything, and I was glad to note finally the short heaving sea, precursor of the wind which followed on the second day. Seals, playing about the spray all day before the breeze came, looked with large eyes when, at evening, she sat no longer like a lazy bird with folded wings. They parted company now, and the spray soon sailed the highest peaks of the mountains out of sight, and the world changed from a mere panoramic view to the light of a homeward-bound voyage. Porpoises and dolphins, and such other fishes as did not mind making a 150 miles a day, were her companions now for several days. The wind was from the southeast. This suited the spray well, and she ran along steadily at her best speed while I dipped into the new books given me at the Cape, reading day and night. March 30th was for me a fast day in honour of them. I read on, oblivious of hunger or wind or sea, thinking that all was going well, when suddenly a coma rolled over the stern and slooped saucily into the cabin, wetting the very book I was reading. Evidently, it was time to put in a reef, that she might not wallow on her course. March 31st, the fresh southeast wind had come to stay. The spray was running under a single reefed mainsail, a whole jib and a flying jib set on the Vilema bamboo, while I was reading Stevenson's delightful Inland Voyage. The sloop was again doing her work smoothly, hardly rolling at all, but just leaping along among the white horses, a thousand gambling porpoises keeping her company on all sides. She was again among her old friends, the flying fish, interesting denizens of the sea. Shooting out of the waves like arrows and with outstretched wings, they sailed on the wind in graceful curves, then falling till again they touched the crest of the waves to wet their delicate wings and renew the flight. They made merry the live-long day. One of the joyful sights of the ocean on a bright day is the continual flight of these interesting fish. One could not be lonely in a sea like this. Moreover, the reading of delightful adventures enhanced the scene. I was simultaneously now in the spray and on the oise in the Arethusa at one and the same time. And so the spray reeled off the miles, showing a good run every day till April 11th, which came almost before I knew it. Very early that morning, I was awakened by that rare bird, the booby, 
with its harsh quack, which I recognized at once as a call to go on deck. It was as much as to say, Skipper, there's land in sight. I tumbled out quickly, and sure enough, away ahead in the dim twilight, about twenty miles off, was St. Helena. My first impulse was to call out, Oh, what a speck in the sea! It is in reality nine miles in length and 2,823 feet in height. I reached for a bottle of port wine out of the locker and took a long pull from it to the health of my invisible helmsman, the pilot of the Pinter. That's the end of chapters 17 and 18. If you'd like to hear my commentary on these, that's coming next. If you'd like to hear the last part of the book, that's in the next podcast. Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and we are out again today doing a field report. I am sitting in a 20 by 20 foot uh, square schoolroom in Mount Hanley, and this is the, the schoolhouse where Joshua Slocum went to school until he was eight years old. He then left this area in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia and went to Briar Island where he lived then, as we know, until his teens when he went off to sea. So this is where he went when he was a little boy. Um, the room has been set up now as a, a museum. So there's all sorts of things in here that wouldn't have been here at the time, but I think they do a good job of giving us a feel for the, the, the life that would have been around a schoolhouse. There's uh, spinning wheels and um, singer sewing tables and woven baskets and little ink wells and all sorts of things that would be of that time. In the centre of the schoolhouse is a beautiful, um, I don't know, is it kind of like a forged iron stove? Beautifully ornate, probably the most ornate one I've ever seen, a little pot-belly wood stove with a big pipe that goes up about 10 feet and then across the room and out to the chimney. So a great way of heating it up. There are one, two, three, four, five, six school desks. Um, it's the kind of desk where the seat and the table are made together with an iron frame. The frame goes down either side. And so the bit that I'm sitting on is uh, the back of the bench in front of me. And then the next bench is the back of the seat in front of it. So um, it's uh, very, very worn is the, is the words that come to mind here. The, the front edge is very, very rounded, very smooth to the touch. And um, big chunks of it missing you know we're uh, I guess this schoolhouse was operating in 1850 uh, so we're looking at something that's you know 170 years old I don't know if these are the original um, tables but I can't really imagine that they're all taken out and then all brought back and put back in and to exactly line up with the marks on the floor so I think we're looking at the original ones I'm sitting on the kind of left side at the back I'm always someone that sits at the back in a classroom I'm wondering if Slocum did as well but the ones towards the back are slightly bigger and then the, the table sets towards the front are very, very small. And I'm guessing that's where Slocum would have sat uh, when he was little. Um, I see they've also got inkwells in the centre of these uh, tables where you can pop a little inkwell in for the, the two children sitting here to, to use, or two or three. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really, really nice coming in here. It's a wet, nasty day uh, in, in October in Nova Scotia. The, Trees are going beautiful golden colours outside, the yellows and reds and what Nova Scotia and New England are really famous for, this, this change of 
change of the colours in the, in the autumn. So the rain's been coming down this morning, the, the windows are spotted with it, the wind's blowing outside. It's very sort of um, atmospheric. It's, it's, uh, you want that pot belly stove to be on and there's a, a blackboard ahead of me. There's some slates laid out on the table, as I say. It's kind of like a little museum, so they've got it looking a bit like it's operational. So we'd, I guess if we're older, we've got our ink and pen, and if we're younger, we maybe just got a slate, and then the, the uh, teacher's up doing whatever they're doing on the blackboard. Um, it's, it's pretty... Um, I don't think many people are coming here. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Like, if you're coming to Nova Scotia, that's a very particular thing. If you're going to the Annapolis Valley on the northern shore of Nova Scotia for tourism, that's a very particular thing. And then if you want to go to the Mount Hanley School where Joshua Slocum was a boy, that's very specific. So it's open between one and four, like three days of a week. And I think because of COVID, it's been closed for quite a long time. But being Nova Scotia, the key's just hanging outside. We're able to let ourselves in. And I hope we're not breaking any bylaws by doing that. But um, it would be the first time ever in Nova Scotia if uh, someone was irritated we let ourselves in when the keys hang in here. But there's all sorts of pictures up on the wall, pictures of Queen Victoria, young and old, um, pictures of the royal family on from those days. And then just in the door as you come in, there's kind of a little table and, and uh, hutch set up, which has got all sorts of things about Joshua Slocum. I'll just get up and move around a little bit. We can have a see what there is. There's, um, I'm going to put some pictures of this onto my Instagram page. Um, you can have a see what some of these details are. There's a big atlas map thing that pulls down in front of the blackboard at the front of the room. I'm guessing that Slocum was probably taking quite a lot of interest in what that was as a, as a little one. Certainly he was off to sea as quickly as he could. So he had something, uh, something inside him that wanted to uh, travel. Uh, lots of black and white pictures. And I see here there's a list of teachers of the Mount Hanley School. In the 1860s, it was Mrs. Susan A. Elliott. So maybe she was or maybe she wasn't his uh, teacher at that time. There's a, another um, framed thing here, which is a record of the Halifax explosion, of course, which is the largest non-nuclear uh, explosive event ever in the history of mankind, uh, which happened here in Nova Scotia in the 1800s where a, uh, two ships collided in the harbour. One of them was carrying a huge amount of munitions and the resultant explosion basically levelled the city. There was, I think there was a bit of the foredeck of one of the ships was found like literally miles away. So that was a big event round here. Um, what else we got here? Lots of things about the Confederation of Canada, which happened in 1920s. Um, before then, of course, it was all separate parts. Uh, what else we've got in here? There's um, some nice paintings that have been done more recently by the looks of things, but of, of nice old scenes of uh, woodsheds and um, the bay and ships out in the bay and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a tapestry of all sorts of different things. Oh, there's something nice here. This is a, a very, very old map that's hanging down, which is of the Annapolis Valley, but it's uh, from 1860 and um, showing, I guess, what would have been big farmland at that time. I think the Annapolis Valley, lots of brassicas, cabbage and Brussels sprouts, lots of apples. That would be the major produce. This is farming territory as opposed to the, uh, the fishing, which is all of what the South Shore, where I come from, is about. So, oh, I see there's blackboards at the back of the classroom as well. So they can keep filling it up with projects and with information. So, yeah, very, very interesting to come here and sort of get a little taste of where Slocum started out. We're uh, just moving now towards the end of reading 
the uh, Slocum book. This is going to be, I'm going to put this in in the second to last one. But um, yeah, I thought it was interesting to come over here. It's about an hour and 20 minutes from my house. I did want to come here when we started to read the book. And I thought maybe to come back on um, Slocum's birthday. But with one thing or another with COVID, it just wasn't possible. So it's this somewhat chilly and blustery autumn uh, uh, afternoon that I find myself here. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic to see that uh, there's a plaque on the outside of it, which is from the Nova Scotia Heritage Society. And there's this little uh, setup in here dedicated to just remembering uh, Slocum and what he did. But uh, I'll be leaving my thank you in the, in the visitor's book here. And if you ever get the opportunity, I'd say uh, come and come and have a look yourself. Come and see what it's all about. This is a real person. What he did was exceptional. And it all started probably looking at one of these little atlas books right here in this room. But um, we're going to find our way out of here now and find our way back to Lunenburg. So I'll flip back over to future Chris, who'll be in the studio. Well, that was me out in Mount Hanley. That was about a month ago now when we was able to get over there and I uh, thought I'd tag it on to the end of this section. We're getting towards the end of Slocum's uh, Alone Around the World. And uh, many of you have been uh, sending me suggestions for what I might read next. So I have some interesting news for you. I'm not going to do any more commentary on these couple of chapters today. I think the uh, little outside broadcast there will uh, be a nice little uh, end to that bit. Very interesting, those chapters, though. I did like the chit-chat about the uh, flat earth thing. We're going to be doing that in the next of the ABC of Sailing podcast, which will be coming out next week. It's going to be F is for flat earth so watch out for that one but um yeah people have been sending me ideas for what i might read next so the news i have to share with you is that i was actually donated completely unconnected to the podcast i was donated basically a, a lifetimes collecting nautical library by a guy called uh, bruce hasi his father was rudy hasi who was a boat designer and rudy collected over the period of his career and of his lifetime over 700 nautical uh, titles. Um, we are incredibly honoured to to have that now. I have this uh, room in my house. We don't have a very large house, but whoever lived here before had a uh, a love of books and had dedicated one room to having all this shelving. So it's remained empty and bare and barren with my sort of hundred books on it. Um, but now it is filled to the gunnels with beautiful. Um, beautiful books, beautiful sailing books, uh, incredible things. I found uh, Slocum's um, The Voyage of the Liberdad the other day, which is the one that he wrote before Alone Around the World. There's all sorts of things there. And what started to occur to me is that, you know, we live in a world now where everything that's in that library, to be honest, could be on my little um, uh, Kindle. You know, it's it's a, it, it's very convenient, but it, it completely misses out on the experience of, of books. And I'm also aware of the fact that there's a lot of titles in this library now, just from a cursory glance, that you can't get easily. So I had a bit of an idea, and I put it to you, see what you think. Um, I'm thinking of starting another podcast, and I'm just going to read the books. I can do this a lot quicker. When I make the, the um, Slocum things, it's tricky because I need to read it, which takes a while, because obviously you know, I'm, I'm getting better at reading and making it into it a nicely edited um, uh, piece of content. But then I have to do all of the 
talking afterwards and I got to look and relook and look and relook through the book and get more details out of it as I can and it adds a lot to it so it makes uh, one one and a half hours of production uh, that you hear ends up taking me about five and a half hours by the time I've done everything but I can plow through them a lot quicker if I just have to read them and I thought you know what probably people are interested to hear details but we can maybe put that in the comments below something um, if I just read them at least you get to hear what those brilliant authors had to say and many of these ones I don't think you'll pick them up anywhere else so I'm going to um, I'm going to put some options on the uh, on the Patreon page. If you haven't seen that already, go over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. And I'm going to put maybe 20 or 30 of the titles there that I think might be of interest. And the patrons can choose which ones they want to hear. And then I will read those. And it will just be, you know, half an hour or 40 minutes of the book, a couple of chapters as we've done with Slocum. And then... Um, I should be able to churn out the next one quite quickly afterwards. It's very enjoyable to read them because I'm I'm reading it as I'm going along as well. And it's quite easy to edit that because if I mess something up, I just have to press my buttons here, go back and, and redo it. The tricky thing is when you're trying to come up with new and novel things to say and... Um, and fluffing your way through it and you oh I wish I hadn't had that coffee I'm talking too much or maybe I should have had a coffee I'm not talking enough um, I think just reading them would be very nice so I'm going to call the podcast Rare Nautical Reads okay it's R&R <laughs> a little bit of r and I thought it's kind of clever it's also Royal Naval Reserve which was something I was part of in the in the UK so I kind of uh, recognize that I don't think that many people are going to be necessarily interested in it because who wants to listen to old sailing books but maybe you do, because I know I do. <laughs> so if you're doing those sanding jobs and you're doing those cleaning jobs, as we always say, um, a little bit of R&R as you're doing it might be a good thing. So if you haven't already, go over to Patreon. I shall put the first 20 titles I'm going to select from on there. And there'll be a discussion there about what's in the library. If you do... If you are looking for like a rare sailing book, give me a shout and maybe, maybe we have it here. We can... Um, well, I don't know if we can like send it to you. I'm not going to break up this library and I'm not going to um, I'm not going to share anything from it. I think it's it's literally the Maritime Museum here in Nova Scotia are interested in a number of the, 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 the tomes and titles here. But uh, as long as they're being looked after, they have no problem with them staying here for a little while. So we can add to the library. We can't take away from it. But if things are in the public domain or if I can get permission, uh, I will read them on R&R &R and then you can uh, you can hear them, you can enjoy them. We can put pictures on Instagram if there's particular plates and things from what we're reading. I think it'll be quite good. So I'll tell you right now, I personally am reading one of the books that I uh, picked out of it. It's Shea Blythe's The Impossible Voyage, <laughs> which is his... Um, his book about sailing west around the world. As you may or may not know, I'm going to go and do that. Um, I was setting out to do that uh, project in 20, uh, 2020. And then, of course, COVID put a nail, a number of nails in that coffin. And then uh, I was going to go and do it this year and having a baby. So I'm not going to, of course, be buggering off to go and sail around the world um, when there's a, a new life on the way. I want to be part of that and here to support my partner. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to read these books. I'm going to share with you my uh, enthusiasm for them, if not me, loads of extra talking on top. And then once the book has come to a close, then we can make it into an audio book. So look for that. I hope you'll enjoy that. 
and I will be back with you in the next podcast, which uh, we're getting a little bit more structure now. We've got a couple of uh, new uh, irons in the fire here. Uh, Spartan, of course, is moving into 2022, which is going to be our first fully operational year after COVID and everything that's happened there. So if you haven't already, go over to the website, SpartanOceanRacing.com. We have sold everything for the first half of the year. So now we are looking at the Marconi Transat that goes from Newfoundland over to the UK. We have the English Channel Pilot, which goes from the UK up to Norway. We've got the Faroe Islands Explorer, which goes from Norway to the Faroe Islands to Iceland. And then we've got the Atlantic Voyager, which goes from Iceland back to Newfoundland. That cycle and circle of things there. So that's what we're going to be booking out next. We get the boats full and we'll be using our 80-foot maxi and we'll be using our 60-foot Whitbread boat. Um, oh, and actually the and Falcon will be in there as well, the, the, the open 60 for the first half of that, the Marconi. So lots to do and see there. Over on Patreon, of course, we've just dropped the latest um, seamanship video. If you haven't had a look at that before at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, we've just put down a, another in the series of seamanship videos they're professionally produced by picnic studios here in nova scotia and uh, i think they're getting better and better we've got lots of um the people at patreon you know send me feedback and show me where i've messed things up and what have you and the idea is that um once we've had that kind of beta testing out the way uh, we'll collate them together into syllabuses which you can then purchase online and download and there'll be questions and opportunities to talk to me and all the rest of it so if you haven't have a look at that at patreon.com and you can get your hands on the latest chit chat it is about head sales it's about um, getting head sales up getting them rolled onto a roller furling system unfurling them and refurling them and all of the tips and tricks that i have learned over 300,000 miles that make that easier so um, yeah be involved with the the community you can go sailing you can learn about sailing or you can hear old sailing books as well as the podcast that will be coming out and the next one i'm looking across at my plan here oh which says it's the abc of sailing on friday so yeah double checking yes it's f is for flat earth so i'll be referring back to this chapter of uh, slocum's book because of course he's dealing with that guy kruger who is a president and uh, still thinks the the world is flat much to um, slocum's amusement as he's just sailed around the world but there we go that's all for next time i hope you enjoyed this one and i will speak to you in the next one cheers